Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode three in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Superior Glory of the New Covenant where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, we're going to talk, as you just said a moment ago, about the superior glory of the new covenant, and it's superior to the old covenant. Paul's going to make that very plain. And we need to understand the old covenant was glorious. Actually, everything God does is glorious, and we'll talk about what that means. But the new covenant is better. The new covenant is more glorious. This is the probably the central theme of the book of Hebrews, is the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. Paul's making that point here. But not only that, he's also talking about himself and credentials, uh, his right, his qualifications to proclaim the new covenant by the power of the Spirit. And I, I think we, we start to get some of the backdrop of Paul's need to to present himself as a faithful minister of the gospel over against people who are questioning those qualifications. I think later in this book, he'll talk about the super apostles. And so there are people who came along after Paul left town and they came in and started disparaging Paul and minimizing him. And so Paul has to talk about his credentials and his right to proclaim the glorious new covenant. So that's where we're gonna go today. Very good. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 for us today. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Andy, why do you think Paul thinks it's necessary here to keep proving the validity of his ministry to the Corinthians? I mean, what are his motives for doing this? Well, I think there's a strong link between the messenger and the message. And so if the messenger can be discredited, the message itself can be discredited. And Paul's very aware of that, and even more so in that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he knows that Satan's technique is going to be to discredit Paul so that ultimately the gospel that Paul preaches will be discredited as well. I think this is the very reason Paul defends himself. Paul cares very little he says in another place, even in this epistle, if he's judged by you or any human court, he understands his real judge is God. However, he knows at the human level that if Paul can actually be discredited, laid low by satanic accusations and other you know, uh, slanderous attacks, he has to deal with those in Romans, uh, slanderously reported that they're saying, let us do evil that good may result, false assertions about the doctrine. If all of this can take root, then Paul will be discredited and everything he preach will be discredited. And that's the real point. So Paul has to defend himself, not because of his ego or he, he has a need or he's weak and he just needs people to like him. Hmm. He's insecure. It's none of that. He wants to protect in the minds of the Corinthians the message, the gospel message he preached. So what are then Paul's letters of recommendation and mm -hmm. how do the changed lives of people prove that God is at work in someone's ministry? Right, so um, it's interesting you use that, that uh, illustration, but back then there would be like letters of introduction or other things mm. that would be able to identify a person. These days we have so much digital technology, uh, there's a, we, we leave a wide footprint and people can track us online on the internet, they can know things about us, et cetera. But back in those days, when people didn't move around as much and there wasn't photography or any of those things, in comes a total stranger. You don't know him at all, mm. but he's able to hand over some letters from someone you do know. And the person uh, wrote about this individual and commends them. And now that person's got an inside track to gain that important person's um, attention. Uh, oh, all right, I understand who you are now. My good friend has written. Uh, what is it you need? That kind of thing. And so the idea of letters of recommendation or letters of introduction would have been well known back then. And so what are Paul's letters of recommendation, his letters of commendation? Who who wrote them? Paul shows up in town. What? How does he validate himself? Well, one of the ways that the Lord validated apostles back then is by signs and wonders, miracles that were done to validate the messenger. Uh, but along with that, even more powerfully here, is the concept of transformed lives. Everywhere I go, everywhere I preach, there are lives that are radically transformed. We see it in 1 Thessalonians. He said, everyone everywhere is talking about the changes that happened in you mm. because you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Mm. You changed the way you lived. Well, that's, that's that happened everywhere Paul went. He said, you, O Corinthians, you are our letters of recommendation. So say to my enemies, my slanderous accusers, these super apostles, look at us before Paul and the gospel came to town, we were pagans, dead in our transgressions and sins. When Paul preached, when the Spirit moved, we were radically transformed. That's how we know that Paul is the real deal. Let's zero in on that just a little bit more. How does the Holy Spirit transform the lives of genuinely converted people? And what does it tell us about a person if that transformation 
doesn't occur? Okay, that's a very important question. We we know in salvation there's these stages that we go through, justification, then sanctification, then glorification. Justification is an instantaneous declaration by Almighty God that a sinner is righteous in his sight, not guilty or in the simple language, forgiven. Forgiven for all sins, past, present, and future, not by works, but by grace through faith in Christ. It's in an instant. At that moment, uh, God in his grace gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit and adopts us as his children, then begins the lifelong journey of sanctification, whereby little by little, we are made more and more like Jesus Christ. We are more and more conformed to the glorious image of Christ. And Paul talks about that later in this very chapter as we move from glory to glory. And so that transformation validates the reality of the justification, so much so that if that transformation doesn't happen, we can actually say that the justification didn't happen. Mm. So that's where James's James chapter 2, without works, faith is dead. And so there is not justifying faith if there's not the works of holiness in particular, a transformed life. As the as uh, John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That's mm. what the Holy Spirit does. Okay, you repented of sin, now let's let's live it out. Uh, and so that's, that's how it works. The, this transformation by the Spirit proves the validity of uh, regeneration of, or being born again. So Paul talks about these letters of recommendation, as it were, that are really the transformed lives of mm-hmm. his hearers. Mm-hmm. What is the confidence that Paul is talking about in verse 4? Okay, this is a very fascinating aspect here. We have a, a confidence, a boldness as ministers of this new covenant. We came to Corinth bold and confident, not in ourselves and not arrogant, but not weak and vacillating as though you were to say to us, well, these are fascinating ideas that you're bringing to our ears. We'd like to know if they're true. Well, I don't know. I mean, Mm. they sound good to me and they've Mm. been working for me so far and I'm hoping that they're true. That would be wimpy. That would not be confident. Instead, uh, Paul says we have a spirit-empowered boldness that the message that we preach is true. It descended from heaven. Read it in Galatians 1. I didn't make up this gospel. Hmm. It was revealed to me by God himself. And so I am here as a messenger. And even if I were to drop dead, this gospel message would be eternally true. This is the eternal gospel. There's a confidence that comes. And we we want the preachers, even in our day, in the 21st century, we want preachers to have that kind of boldness, that confidence that God has called them to proclaim this lasting, eternal, new covenant. And so he speaks of a competence here, a, a, uh, a confidence and a competence, which is so powerful. We can talk more about competence, but I, I just think it's an amazing concept. Yeah, let's talk even more about that and about the confidence as well. Why is Paul so careful to say that that confidence isn't from himself, right? His own personality, his persuasiveness, his piety, but this is really from God. Absolutely. This is so powerful. Um, He's very careful about this. My confidence doesn't come from myself, neither does my competence come from myself. Mm. I am a sinner saved by grace. Mm. He says it very plainly. He says, you know, I was the chief of all sinners. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, a violent man. I have no competence in myself. I have nothing in myself. I'm not here to preach myself. I'm here to preach the only perfect man that, that has ever lived, Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. That's what I'm here to preach, not myself. Reminds me of that really amazing moment when God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh 
And Moses says to him, and this is at the burning bush, as you remember, and Moses says to him, who am I that I should go and speak to Pharaoh? And the answer that came was, I will be with you. So you think about that. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Answer, I will be with you. Well, put that two together. You didn't answer my question. You're not the point. You're, you're irrelevant. You know, I planted the seed of Paul's water, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. So I'm nothing. Hmm. Like Moses, you're not the point. Yeah. I can raise up, like John the Baptist said, out of these stones, a messenger to Pharaoh. I've chosen you, et cetera. So there, our competence doesn't come in and of ourselves. Now, Paul continues that thought into verse six. He says, who's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new uh, covenant, not of the letter, mm -hmm. but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Mm -hmm. What does that phrase mean? Oh, and man. why should we not take this idea too far mm -hmm. and minimize the role of the written word of God? Yeah, this is so powerful. And we're just used to this new covenant language, but that's just radical and powerful, so much so that God had to pave the way uh, through Jeremiah and Jeremiah 31 saying, behold, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Mm. And that's very powerful. The author of Hebrews picks up on this by calling this covenant new. He's made the old one obsolete. And so old covenant, new covenant. New covenant is eternal and lasting. The old covenant is obsolete. Uh, the author of Hebrews says obsolete and aging and will soon disappear. So that's animal sacrifice, the mm. temple sacrificial mm. system, all that was still going at that time. And but it was not long for this world. God was going to just take it right out. It was it was passing away. It was obsolete. The new covenant is eternal. Jesus first spoke of it uh, at the Last Supper when he said, "This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." That's the new covenant. Jesus' own blood bought that covenant for us. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties. And so here is this, this agreement that God has to save us from our sins through faith in Christ, if Christ will shed his blood for them. He did, the conditions of the covenant are met, and then in us he works that repentance and faith necessary that we would click into that and receive benefit from it. That is the new covenant, and it is better than the old covenant. And he says uh, that God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. We have the right to minister this new covenant. And he says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, the essential difference between the new covenant and the old, or the old covenant and the new, is the radical transformation of the people from the inside mm -hmm. moving out the removal of the heart of stone and the giving of the heart of flesh in Ezekiel's language. It is the transformation of the heart that Jeremiah said, I will put my laws in your mind and I will write them on your hearts. I will make you yourselves new people. You will become new men and new women. You'll be mm -hmm. transformed. That is the power of the spirit. The letter never did that. The letter stood on the outside and told you what a holy life was, mm -hmm. but it could not make you live it. And not only that, along with it came the death penalty if you didn't follow it. That's why Paul says that the letter brings death. The spirit doesn't bring death. The spirit brings life. So this is the radical difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And that contrast between life and de death really carries over into this next section that we'll look at as he begins to focus more and more on that superior glory of the new covenant. In mm -hmm. verse 7, he talks about this ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Mm -hmm. Why does Paul use this terminology, and what specific moment from uh, Israel's history is he zeroing in on here? Well, definitely he's talking about um, the Lord giving the tablets of stone 
to Moses, he, God himself made the first tablets and God himself wrote with the finger of God, it says, and inscribed the 10 commandments that God had already spoken in such a voice that was so terrifying that the people begged that no further word be spoken to mm. them because they could not survive if God continued to speak to them. They were so afraid. And they asked Moses to go up and listen to God and God would speak his words to Moses and he would come down as the mediator, as a prophet and speak the words of God to the people. And God was very pleased with that fear, the fear of the Lord that was so beautiful to God. He said, oh, I wish that my people would always fear me. So Moses went up into the glory cloud. He went up on the mount, on Mount Sinai and received from God the first, I think literally the first scripture. Uh, there was there was no evidence of any written word of God before the Ten Commandments. So I believe this is the beginning of the heritage that is now spread out on the tables before us. Mm. The Bible you have on your side and I have a Bible on mine, the written word of God. It all started with the finger of God on the tablets of stone, the mm. Ten Commandments. And so Paul here, uh, I know it seems like he's disparaging that. He's not. He knows that God did that. But still it brought death. The, the ministry engraved in letters on stone did not transform the heart of stone of hmm. the people. Well, you know what happened. Uh, Moses brought those two tablets down and the people were already violating the Ten Commandments. Wow. They'd already violated the very voice of God. They had heard God speaking to them and they disobeyed. Mm. So they were sinners from the inside out and no external laws could change that. And so, as you remember, Moses hurled the stone tablets down and shattered them. Hmm. And then um, he made some other tablets and then God you know, wrote on them as well. And uh, the fact of the matter is the word was lasting and timeless, but those tablets of stone uh, represent a temporary phase of ministry that could not bring salvation. God's purpose in all of this was to give us life. I mean, he could have killed us from heaven uh, he, like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, mm. you know, the, his only begotten son, born of a virgin to save us. As Jesus said, uh, son of man came into the world not to condemn men, but to, that men might be saved through him. And so uh, fundamentally, the law of Moses, the old covenant did not save. It was a precursor, yes, a necessary precursor, but it did not save. It brought death. People died because of it. Now, interestingly, even with that being the case, Paul talks about this this kind of glory that it yeah. still comes with. But he goes on in verses 7 through 11 to kind of compare and contrast the ministry of the Spirit in the mm -hmm. New Covenant and the ministry of condemnation in the Old Covenant. Mm -hmm. Why is Paul making this point to the Corinthians? And how is this really the main point Paul's making in these verses, that the glory of the Old Covenant right. is fading and obsolete? The glory of the New Covenant is eternal. Okay, so he's talking about uh, Moses' face. Uh, which was shining with radiant light because God revealed himself in light. Now, we have to understand the word glory. I've meditated much on this concept. It's a very important idea. And I've come up with this definition of glory, the glory of God. The glory of God is the radiant display of his perfections or his attributes. Attributes are adjectives like God is merciful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. These are all attributes. So the radiant display, radiant means bright, shining. Now, sometimes the light is invisible. It's light of the mind and of the heart. Um, it's not a visible light. 
right? And the clearest example of that is the death of Jesus on the cross. It was mm. not a bright, shiny thing. It was dark. Uh, a supernatural darkness came over Palestine when Jesus died on the cross. And yet it was the most glorious thing that had ever happened. It was the clearest display of the glory of God there's ever been. All of the attributes of God were on perfect display at the cross. Mm. Sometimes, however, God chooses literal physical light. So when um, the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds outside Bethlehem when Jesus was born, it says the glory of the Lord shone around and the angels were terrified. So there's sometimes a bright shining light as when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became whiter than light. It was brilliant. Or when Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. It was brilliant light. Sometimes it's visible light. And that's what it was. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he went up into a cloud, but also into light. And the light kind of I don't know, went into his skin, mm. went, went into his body, mm. and he came down radiant yeah. and shining, and the people were terrified of him. They, they were, it was like, you've become an, another being, but he hadn't. He just had been in the presence of God, and there was a glory on him. And in order to, to keep the Israelites from being terrified in his presence, he put a veil over his face uh, so that they wouldn't be blinded by the light coming from his face. But it turns out the glory faded. Mm. I don't know how long it took, but within a, a, a period of time, Moses' face didn't shine anymore. Mm. So what Paul's doing with all of that, that's all just a story from the book of Exodus, what he does with that is he said, there is a radiant glory that came from the old covenant. There is a display of a sort of the character of God in thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and, and if anyone does X, he shall be stoned to death or whatever. There's, there's a display of God's glory in this, but there's a far greater display of God's glory in the new covenant, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. It's more glorious, infinitely more mm. glorious. So there's glory in the old, it's true, but the new covenant is more glorious. And I love that. Verse 11 seems to really summarize well verses 7 through 11 when it says, If what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more, we might even say mm -hmm. how much more, mm -hmm. will what is permanent have glory, the amazing glory that's on display in that new covenant. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited about my book on heaven, which is coming out next month. And I uh, just want to commend it to all of our listeners. The glory now revealed, you know, what we'll learn about God in heaven. Um, and what we're going to learn about God in heaven is how glorious he is. And mm -hmm. he, they're going to be almost, well, I think, infinite, infinite displays of God's glory. And the old covenant will be included. Hmm. The facts of the Old Testament, the things that happened, what God did in the Exodus, what God did in that entire old covenant era when he had not yet brought the new covenant in Christ and, and in the spirit. But still, the things God did back then were glorious. It was a display of the character of God. Mm. But just the new covenant's greater. It's a greater display. It's a better thing. And so that um, old glory was fading away. And if it came with glory, then how much more glory comes with the new covenant? Mm. How does Paul use this superior glory as fuel for hope, resulting in his boldness in life and ministry as we move into verse 12? Okay, so um, we have a tremendous amount of boldness in Paul. Paul is bold. He's confident. He absolutely believes 
in what he's doing. He believes in what he's proclaiming. I, I hesitate to even mention, but a, like a salesman needs to believe in his product or he needs to get another line of work. <laughs> if he doesn't really like what he's selling, it's gonna be obvious. Mm. Paul infinitely believes in what he's proclaiming. He he believes that it's glorious. It fills him with boldness. It fills him with confidence for himself personally. It fills him with hope. He knows that the future is infinitely bright. He can't wait to get to heaven himself, as he says in Philippians 1. And he wants to he wants to spread that hope and that message of glory everywhere. I mean, people are living in the land of the shadow of death, as it says in Isaiah 9. Then in comes the gospel and people are springing to life through faith in Christ and they are living glorious, transformed lives, as we'll talk about in a moment. That excites him and it gives him hope and boldness. How is Paul then different than Moses? And we've talked some about this, but when it comes to the veil specifically, what's wrong with the minds of unbelieving Jews according to verses 13 through 16? Well, here's Moses. He's covering over his face. Paul doesn't want to cover anything. Mm. He wants to proclaim and reveal. Think about apocalypsis, uh, the revelation. Both the word uh, apocalypse, apocalypsis, the, the Greek word, and the Latinized form revelation mean unveiling, both of it's like a taking away of the veil. And mm. it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm. We usually think it's an unveiling of the future. It is that, but it's even more an unveiling of Christ. Christ is veiled. He's hidden. And, and the incarnation somewhat veiled him. He just looked like a normal man. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance. That's why the Mount of Transfiguration is so important. He appeared radiant and glorious. And Moses was there talking to him along with Elijah, you know, and, and here's Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, talking to Jesus, and there's Peter blabbing at the mouth, didn't know what to say, so he said this, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, we'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He <laughs> did not know what he was saying. They were so afraid. Then suddenly a bright cloud, a cloud of light enveloped them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now there's a clear message. Moses and Elijah are gone. Who's left? No one but mm. Jesus. And so he Here's this idea. Moses had this fading glory and he put a veil over his face. Paul says, we're not veiling anything. We're here to remove the veil. We're here to make Jesus radiantly glorious in your minds by the proclamation of the message. And so we're not, we're not trying to veil things. But meanwhile, we've got the Jews and they've had a veil over their minds for centuries. Whenever Moses is read, they just can't see the real point. Mm. And the real point of Moses and his writings is Jesus Christ. Mm. Jesus himself said it in John chapter 5. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. What an incredible statement. Jesus made a lot of bold statements. Mm -hmm. Moses wrote about me. How did he write about you? Well, how about the, the serpent, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Right there, he was writing about Jesus. How about Genesis 22, when, when the angel of the Lord interceded and stopped Abraham from killing Isaac? And, and he said, you know, now I know that you fear God, that you've not withheld your son, your only son, Isaac, from me. But before that, Moses or Abraham had said, um, God himself will provide the lamb, that, that sacrificial atonement, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. All of these things are pointing toward Christ and every animal sacrifice there ever was. You know, the, the substitutionary atonement, all of it pointed 
to Jesus Christ. And so whenever they read these stories, you're like, how can you not see Christ in this? Mm. Let me tell you a quick story about a, a church that I love up in Boston, Mosaic Church. They're meeting in a Jewish temple. They call it a temple, even though it's not the real temple, but some you know wealthy kind of urban Jewish assemblies are called temples. And they don't need it on Sunday, obviously. <laughs> um, and so Mosaic Church comes and uses their their building, their auditorium. But it's a it's a Jewish temple, and written all around, you know, up above, high above. It's like a little dome thing, like the Capitol building, only much smaller, of course. And are all these Old Testament scriptures? And I'm reading them like a Christian, and I'm like. Do you not see? <laughs> yeah, this are, is how Jesus. Can you not see how what's can going you on not here? see this? Mm. How can you not see? Wow. Um, you know all of these things, and and you look at it, and it's just there's this veil over their minds. They don't see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God mm. in the face of Christ, which is in the next chapter. Yeah. They don't see it, and so there's this veil covering their minds whenever Moses is read. Yeah, and really that that is, I think, the question because clearly the Jews are not alone in this. Mm -mm. spiritual blindness if you will so the yeah. veil is is a kind of spiritual blindness that they're yeah. experiencing and the only hope is exactly what you said verse six of the next mm -hmm. chapter we'll look at in mm -hmm. our time together mm -hmm. that god who said let light shine out of darkness would shine in their hearts right mm -hmm. as it says has shown in our hearts mm -hmm. to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ so yeah. how is this veil removed not just for the jews but mm -hmm. for any who have this Spiritual blindness. Yeah, and it's. I think the Jews are uniquely culpable because you know, at least the ones that are still reading the scriptures and all. That, the more you know and mm. still don't believe in Jesus, the more culpable you are. And so here they have all of these these advantages. Paul talks about in Romans chapter nine. They have the heritage, the patriarchs. They have the stories. They have the law of Moses. They have all of these prophecies. Isaiah fifty three. How can you read that and not see Christ? So there's this, this veil over their minds. And to answer your question, though, the veil is removed, it says, whenever anyone turns to Christ. Whenever you come to Christ, the veil is taken away. And I think we, we have to believe that this is the secret, the powerful work of the Spirit of God. He comes into your mind and heart and takes away the dullness. He uses the language here, their minds were made dull. I don't know mm -hmm. what, to, what verb or what word do you have in verse 14. Yeah, verse 14 says their minds were hardened. Hardened. So there's a dullness, a hardening. They're not responsive. But then the Spirit comes and does his therapeutic work. Their mind is healed from its blindness, and they can suddenly see the truth of everything. They can see why it is that Jesus had to die on the cross, why the Messiah, the son of David, had to be crushed by the Gentiles and by the Jewish authorities on the cross, because without it, we're under the wrath of God. They, it made sense. You could see how even the Apostle Paul had to work through this. Saul of Tarsus had to work through this. How could the Messiah, supposedly, according to you, the Son of God, become a curse? Mm. Because it says, cursed is everyone hung on a tree, and then he put it together. Oh, I'm the one cursed. Mm. And Jesus, to save me, must take my curse on himself. He became a curse for me. Things just fit into place. Well, how does that happen? Spirit of God. Spirit of God comes along and says, effectively, I wrote the Old Testament. I know everything in it. I know all the details. Let me tell you what I meant. Mm. 
Let me tell you how they point to the second person in the Trinity, how they point to Jesus, the Son of God, how Jesus himself then points to God the Father. Let me show you all of these things. And then suddenly they were blind and now they can see the veil is removed. Mm. And verse 17 and 18 really tell us that also the Holy Spirit has a role in removing this veil of unbelief and spiritual blindness. What does mm-hmm. Paul mean when he says the Lord is the Spirit? And mm-hmm. what's the nature of the freedom? We were talking about this a little bit beforehand. Mm-hmm. What's the nature of the freedom that Paul is speaking about? Praise here? God. I mean, here's the thing. And I, I, I probably will get emotional if I talk long enough about this. I'm already feeling it. How much we owe our salvation to the Spirit of God. Um, Christ would mean nothing, Wes, to you or me if it weren't for the Spirit. Hmm. He would mean nothing to us. He'd be a historical figure. We'd think he was a great moral teacher. We'd think he was a myth. We wouldn't think anything of it. Or we would just misunderstand an anomalism or some other thing. But because of the Spirit of God, he has come and effectively saved you and me. And the Spirit comes in and removes the blindness from us. We all have our own blindness, our veil. And the Spirit comes in and he cannot be stopped. Hmm. Wherever he, the wind blows, that's where, that's where uh, you see the trees moving and all that. The, the wind blows where it wishes. That's what it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nothing can stop it. The, the, the Satan, demons, the world system cannot stop the sovereign mo- moving of the Spirit. Now, wherever the, the, the Spirit moves, it says here, interestingly, the Lord is the spirit now in our new testament reading usually almost in every case the word lord means jesus all right uh, i think in the old testament it meant yahweh the god mm-hmm. god of abraham isaac and jacob i understand that and jesus himself sometimes uses the word lord to refer to his father but ordinarily just in paul's writings the lord is jesus so jesus is the spirit what does that mean? Well, he's not denying the Trinity. Uh, they are separate persons, whatever the word separate means. I'll never be able to understand what <laughs> that means because they're perfectly one. But the Spirit ministers Jesus wherever he goes. That's how Jesus keeps his promise. Truly, I'll be with you, all of you, always, even to the end of the age. Wherever you go all over the earth, I'll be there. How's that? By the Spirit. So this, the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Now, what is the nature of this freedom? Some translations say liberty, but we just need to understand it as freedom. I think it links to what Jesus said uh, to his enemies. He said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He said, you're slaves. You're slaves to sin. We said, mm-hmm. we're no, no, free men. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. You're slaves. But if the Son sets you free, you will be truly free or free indeed. That's what the verse is talking about. When the Spirit comes, Jesus, uh, the Spirit ministers Jesus, and he sets you free from sin forever. Well, praise God for that freedom. And really, that is the lie of sin, right? Mm -hmm. Is that sin will give us this freedom or this fulfillment that we desire. But true freedom comes Mm -hmm. from knowing Jesus Christ and that by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Verse 18 literally says that Christians are being transformed from glory in to glory. Mm-hmm. What does this teach us about the Christian life and sanctification? And what mm-hmm. final thoughts do you have for us on this third chapter uh, of Second Corinthians? Verse 18 is one of those great, great verses. You could spend so many, so many hours meditating on it. We who have unveiled faces, unlike Moses, unveiled faces, we do what? Reflect the Lord's glory. That's mm-hmm. Jesus's glory. So we have shining faces now, and it's not physical, but there's there's just a joy, a radiance, a light in our eyes, a happiness. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail singing and praising, and they're just happy. 
their earthly circumstances are terrible, but their eternal circumstances are wonderful, infinitely so. And so they're reflecting the glory of Jesus on their faces. We with unveiled faces are reflecting the Lord's glory or in, in some ways contemplating and meditating on it. We, we show the greatness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. All right, that's who we are. We are being transformed into his likeness. That's Romans 8, where it says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. We are being made like Jesus. That's the essence of sanctification or mm. simply discipleship. We are more and more conformed to Christ. We think like him, love what he loves, hate what he hates, and do what he did. That's that's what it means to be transformed into his likeness by the ministry of the word. We are no longer to be conformed to this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds by the study of God's word. We're being transformed into Jesus's likeness from glory into glory is a literalistic translation. We were glory yesterday we're more glorious tomorrow it's just amazing i mean just the, the spirit's working more and more glory in us all of this comes from the lord that's jesus who is the spirit well that's the same thing we said before there is an intimate connection between the spirit and jesus very much like philip when philip said lord show us the father and it'll be enough for us and jesus said don't you know me philip anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, the Spirit, if we could say, you know, show us Jesus, and the Spirit says, don't you know me? Anyone who has me has Jesus. Mm -hmm. The Spirit ministers Jesus to us the way that Jesus ministers the Father to us. It's, that's the work of the Trinity, amazingly. So this is the from glory into glory. That's the Christian life. Andy, any final thoughts for us on this chapter? Oh, just be joyful in this. If you're a Christian, you are glorious right now. But your your glory right now is as nothing compared to what it finally will be in heaven. You're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. And all of that radiance will be to the glory of God the Father through Jesus. So it's a radiance of Jesus. And so we're just supposed to let our light shine. Jesus wants us to shine the glory of Christ in our present lives. That's my exhortation to you. Well, thanks, Andy. This has been episode three in our Second Corinthians Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode four entitled Glorious Light Ministered by Jars of Clay, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter four, verses one through 18. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.